Welcome to Humanly, the podcast searching for the truth about health and wellness. Here's your host, Daniel Reuters. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Humanly. My name is Daniel Reuters, and today I'm very excited to be joined by Dr. Linda Isaacs. Uh, Dr. Isaacs graduated from Vanderbilt University School of Medicine and is certified by the American Board of Internal Medicine. She co-authored the book, The Trophoblast and the Origins of Cancer. And I'll post up her link to her website where you can find out more about that in the show notes. Uh, Dr. Isaacs, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast. Well, thank you so much for inviting me from all the way around the world. It's, it's a lot of fun to be able to speak to someone from Australia. Yeah, I'm really excited to have you here. I actually found out about you because recently I've been doing some looking into coffee enemas. And I thought being the uh, the sort who just wants to research the heck out of everything, I went looking through the literature to find um, some papers, scientific journal articles about coffee enemas and your paper came up which you published in 2021 uh coffee enemas a narrative review and i read that and thought wow this is really interesting and how about i just contact you to see if i can actually get you to come on and maybe share some of your uh, expertise around coffee enemas oh okay well that's great i'm glad you found my article it's nice to know it's being read yeah it was a great paper um so i guess maybe we can just start a little bit about your background and what your journey through medicine was like to get you to the point where you were using things like coffee enemas in your practice because you wouldn't have been taught about that sort of stuff in medical school, right? No, I never heard about coffee enemas in medical school, but it was coffee enemas were part of a treatment protocol that another doctor and I were looking into many years ago. And I, I guess perhaps what I'll do is talk about coffee enemas first and then go back to how I came to get interested in it. Um, coffee enemas have actually been around for hundreds of years. I, I found articles going back to 1850 where they were described as something everybody knew about in effect. And so obviously they've been around for a long, long time. And they were used for things like poisoning or, um, or for sepsis. I, I have one article written by a, a surgeon in Uruguay who in 1941, and he talked about using them for a wide variety of different things and, and was pleading for their continued use. But it's the kind of technique that, you know, when when pharmaceuticals, when the big wave of pharmaceuticals came out in the 40s and 50s, things like coffee enemas would be looked at as old fashioned and not in a use. Um, but many of the things that started to be used for inflammatory conditions like steroids turned out to be very toxic. Um, coffee enemas, you know, my patients love them. Nobody believes it until they try it. But almost everybody feels tremendously better when they do them, when they use them. And uh, I think there's a lot to be said for trying to reintroduce them into the regular medical world. Yeah. So what originally got you interested in coffee enemas? Because it's not something that would be like common practice or taught in medical school. This is certainly uh, what would be considered an alternative practice. So was this something that you originally tried yourself and thought, wow, this is really good? Or did you just start to try it first in your patients and you saw results? How did you get interested in it? Well, actually, I, I first heard about coffee enemas when I was a medical student. And 
the way that that came about, uh, when I was a student, I was assigned to an internal medicine team in the hospital for my part of my training and, and wound up working with another doctor there named Nicholas Gonzalez. And he was investigating a man named Dr. William Donald Kelly. And Kelly, uh, Dr. Kelly was an orthodontist who had um, had created a treatment for cancer based on his own experience. And a big part of that treatment um, of his was coffee enemas. Now, um, so I heard about them in that context first. Um, but then when I was when I was in medical school, you know, toward the end of my training in my third and fourth year, I started to feel unwell, just very tired and fatigued. And that got worse and worse during my internship. And so I actually tried coffee enemas during that period. And I found that I felt so much better with them that I was willing to get up an extra 45 minutes early when I was a medical intern and sleep was very precious during that era. So getting up early meant those coffee enemas were extremely helpful. Um, I actually wound up in effect developing like a chronic fatigue syndrome and got better using nutritional approaches, which included coffee enemas. Wow. So you had some personal experience yourself and it's great that you got some uh, benefit, benefit from that. And maybe we can just start at the very beginning because I think when people hear about an enema, they're sort of like grossed out or it seems really weird and you know not really uh, something that they want to try when they first hear about it. And I was kind of like that too before I started doing it. And I was like, oh, this isn't so <laughs> bad. Um, so like what in effect is a coffee enema? Is it just like making a cup of coffee in the morning and then putting it in an enema bag and away you go? Or are there special ways that you need to um, create the enema, special types of coffee, special preparation techniques? What's the sort of method behind it? Okay. Well, I can't get into a specific cookbook type of thing, but I'm sure that your your listeners can probably find directions out there on the internet, but it's not really considered kosher for me to give exact um, directions. Sure. Having said that, um, the typical coffee for a coffee enema is weaker than drinking coffee. And a fairly obvious thing is that you don't want it to be boiling hot. You don't want it to be the same kind of temperature that you might drink. Uh, you want it to be body temperature. The way that I approach it is I, I just stick my finger in the coffee. And if my finger can stay there comfortably, then it's at a reasonable temperature. Um, you would think that that would be a common sense approach to coffee enemas. But in fact, there are articles out there about people that put boiling hot coffee in their body and burn themselves. So do not do that. Um, you want the coffee to be, um, again, more dilute, room temperature, uh, and beyond that, yeah, it's a matter of, of putting the coffee up up the other end, so to speak. Yeah. yeah. And how long do, how frequently and how long do you need to use these? Or are they uh, basically, it would depend on the individual and the thing that they're trying to manage? Right. It definitely depends. Um, I myself have done coffee enemas for years. You know, I feel better when I do them, so I keep doing them. Um, most of my patients do two doses twice a day, so that each one is held for about 10 minutes. So that means it's going to take them about 45 minutes twice a day. Um, but over time, you know, after some time on the protocol, they don't need as much. 
Um, some people that don't have that much going on in terms of health concerns um, may not do them as often. So I have I have former patients that tell me they're just doing them like once a week or something. Um, so it, it really depends on what's going on. But uh, you know, in terms of what exactly they're doing, um, some researchers in Korea actually did a study that was published in 2014, and what they established was that coffee enemas stimulate flow of bile from the liver, and bile is where the liver gets rid of waste materials, so what we believe is that it's helping the liver to get rid of stuff from the body a little bit more effectively. Um, I think they also operate as an anti-inflammatory. Um, as an example, I have a patient with a particular type of inflammatory arthritis, and he was cutting corners on his coffee enemas, and I told him, if you will just faithfully do them the way I told you to for three weeks, I think it will sell you. And he upped the number of coffee enemas he was doing. His back pain went away and uh, he's, he's sold. He's a convert. It's really interesting that it works for arthritis and even for you with chronic fatigue. Do you think that for yourself it was working by like increasing your energy because it was having a stimulant effect? Or do you think that maybe there was some sort of toxicity that was associated with your chronic fatigue and it helps your body to eliminate those toxins through the bile? How do you think it was helping? Yeah, I, I think it was a matter of helping to get rid of, of waste materials, toxins. Um, part of why I say that, uh, you remember I said that I was doing them initially during my internship. And, you know, that was back in the days, well, the days continue actually, where, where doctors would go into the hospital and stay around the clock and into the next day. So there would be mornings where I couldn't do the coffee enemas because I was still in the hospital. I would try drinking coffee instead, but it was a totally different effect. Um, and those some some other researchers in Korea actually did studies where they they looked at how how much caffeine was in the blood, uh, comparing drinking a, a certain amount of caffeine versus using it as a coffee enema. And you actually absorb a lot less of it um, when you use it as an enema. So the, in other words, the amount, uh, the amount from that, from the enema was about the same as eight hours after drinking it um, and letting it wear off in effect. Um, so it works, it works very differently. It's not a matter of a caffeine high. Mm. Yeah. Cause I'm sort of not a big proponent of drinking coffee. I used to drink a lot of it myself, but not so much anymore. So why can't people just drink coffee and expect to have the same effect as doing an enema? Is this um, because it's having like a flushing effect in the bowel and it's helping to remove the the feces? Is it a hydration effect? What's yeah, Why is there a difference? Uh, I don't really know, to be okay. honest. And, you know, there are some people that advocate coffee enemas that would give you various speculation about it. Mm. Uh, there were some researchers in the 20s and 30s, and there was actually a big, big fad of, of not just coffee enemas, but enemas in general, uh, about 100 years ago, 90, 100 years ago. And what they said, again, was that any kind of enema would stimulate bile flow. Uh, but what exactly the coffee enemas are doing is really not totally determined. All I can tell you is that drinking it and using it as an enema, the way you feel afterwards is very different. Yeah, it's interesting that uh, you've been using 
these coffee enemas and they're getting an effect, but we really don't have a, a huge amount of evidence there to show them the precise mechanisms. Um, That's right. And bear in mind that, you know, evidence and science, so to speak, uh, gets done on things that scientists believe are important and valuable. Coffee enemas got put on the back burner, you know, 50, 60 years ago. Uh, and then <clears throat> another concern is that it's not that easy to study um, exactly what the coffee enemas are doing because uh, I, I actually had a little dialogue with a researcher who has um, done work with measuring toxins in blood and sweat and in urine. Uh, but nobody really wants to do those studies on coffee enema liquid. You know, it's just not aesthetically <laughs> uh, pleasant to think about. And so I, I really don't, I'm, I'm still pondering how I might, you know, if, if funding ever comes along and, you know, the right, the right time, so to speak, how, I, how would I establish what coffee enemas are doing exactly? But, uh, you know, the reality is it makes people feel better and that's why I use them. So it might be, some sort of methodology where you're using like a water enema and then measuring the amount of some specific toxin in the water and then doing a coffee enema and then measuring the toxin there. Yeah, it'd be... Oh, well, perhaps, but even there, if you're saying that the coffee enemas work by stimulating bile, you know, bear in mind that the bile is way upstream. Mm. And so you're going to have a hard time establishing exactly what the coffee enemas did or, or measuring it. Because um, that that might not come out for quite some time, um, so I'm not really sure why people feel immediately better. Um, from my point of view, it's good enough that people do feel immediately better. Yeah, absolutely. I've also pondered whether or not there's a um, an aspect of a placebo effect because it is a sort of different way of administering a a treatment, and uh, I wonder if the I'm not saying it's all placebo because I've had some good results myself as well. Mm -hmm. uh, Perhaps, but, you know, given given the nature of the procedure, which, you know, as you commented, and I certainly, when I first heard about coffee enemas, I thought it was the weirdest thing I'd ever heard. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I would then think that I would see as much nocebo, in other words, mm -hmm. where people feel bad as a result of doing it. And I really get almost no uh, people telling me that. Yeah. So. I think something real is going on. I just don't know what. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, it's interesting that you said you're doing it up to two times per day because this is sort of reminiscent of what... Uh, are you familiar with the Gerson therapy? Because they use a lot of juicing right. and, and coffee animals. And I think they were using those several times a day as well. Right. Um, for people with some pretty um, significant conditions like cancer and, and these types of things. Um, uh, right. Yeah, the, the Gerson people do use coffee enemas quite extensively. Um, but, you know, as I said, they were in the literature for many years before Max Gerson was even alive. So so they, they've been around. Yeah. And it's interesting that uh, in the literature, they talk about it being potentially harmful. And they sort of try and downplay the potential benefit beneficial effects of coffee enemas, a couple of the papers I've read, they're saying, oh, there's all these potential harms and risks and you have to be really, really careful. In your opinion, how potentially harmful or how much risk is there associated with doing a coffee enema? And do they need to be professionally administered or are these something that people can do relatively safely at home if they know the correct methods? 
Well, I have my patients do it for themselves at home. So I've told them how to do it. And of course, I've screened them before talking, you know, before telling them about it to believe that they're, they can safely do it. Um, really, you know, I believe they're quite safe, uh, but there are certain conditions I would not suggest somebody do them with. And that would include things like ulcerative colitis or Crohn's disease, you know, inflammation of the colon. Wouldn't make sense to introduce something under those circumstances. Beyond that, it starts getting into pure common sense. Uh, again, boiling hot is not a great idea. Um, and most of the articles that you'll find bewailing, bemoaning the, the dangerousness of coffee enemas, either somebody did something dumb, like use boiling hot coffee, or the patient was extremely sick. And what happened was blamed on the coffee enemas, but it really could have been just simply because the patient was extremely ill. Um, so, again, I go into a bit more detail about that in the article that you mentioned, um, because I went through the literature looking for those kinds of stories. Um, but, you know, my experience is, like I said, they're really quite safe. Hmm. Yeah, I've not had any issues personally uh, doing them myself and uh, either has my partner. And we definitely noticed that they're having a beneficial effect on our health, which is mm -hmm. a, a really positive sign. Um, but yeah, it was something that I had put off doing for a while just because I thought it was, I built it up in my head to be something bigger than it really was. And once I tried it, it was actually like, oh, this isn't so bad. Um, right. And I, I think that, yeah, there's definitely some merit to what you're saying there about stimulating the detoxification processes and, and the clearance of um, bile from the gallbladder. Are these enemas uh, something that you would use for people with, say, gallstones? Or do you think that that could be potentially um, risky? You know, there again, we've, we've never seen any trouble with it. I, I, I don't even think about that particular issue. I don't think that would be a problem. Yeah, well. So with um, coffee enemas, mm -hmm. it, are these uh, enemas you're doing mainly for people with cancer or are you using it for a wide range of different conditions? Well, I use, I recommend them for a wide range of conditions. And really, you know, unfortunately at this point, we live in a fairly toxic world. So unless somebody is going out of their way to live a very clean lifestyle, they're going to have stuff in their system. And so, again, the vast majority of people, regardless of diagnosis, feel better with coffee enemas. So I use it. I use them with a lot of different folks. Yeah, fantastic. Um, would you be happy to speak to me a little bit about your thoughts around cancer and uh, potentially what some of the causes might be? And mm -hmm. uh, maybe we can get into how you approach treating cancer as well. Sure. Well, the way I got into this work, as I mentioned before, was that I met um, Dr. Nicholas Gonzalez. And at the time I met him, he was researching the work of Dr. William Donald Kelly. And Kelly uh, was a practitioner who treated cancer for a good 
oh, 25, 30 years. Um, he had actually been an orthodontist by training, but when he was in his late 30s, he himself developed what was almost certainly a cancer. I say that almost certainly phrase because uh, it was the early 1960s, and so there were no CAT scans and there were no needle biopsies. So the only way to figure out why he had lost 50 pounds and had a tumor sticking out of his abdomen would have been to take him to the operating room. Uh, his doctors felt like there was really no reason to do that with a clearly terminal man, and they just told him to get his affairs in order. Um, but he had had some interest in nutrition, uh, and he was willing to try things. Um, so he had modified his diet. Uh, then he started taking large doses of pancreatic enzymes trying to help his digestion. And he found that the nature of the tumor started to change when he did that, uh, taking large doses of enzymes. And um, he found that it, it wasn't as hard. It was kind of mushy. Uh, it changed its character. Um, then he started, after taking the enzymes for a while, he started to feel like he had the flu, like very sick, very nauseated, started doing coffee enemas, and those symptoms resolved. Um, so with the combination of diet change, uh, large doses of enzymes, and coffee enemas, he actually got better. He got over um, the illness that was about to kill him. And his community noticed that this man who looked like he'd been dying now was back to work and looking like his old self. So what happened then was that people started coming to him not to get their teeth straightened by the orthodontist, but to find out what the cancer patient had done to get better. And his practice changed bit by bit um, to become the treatment of cancer. So Nick was investigating Dr. Kelly's records uh, at the time that I met him. I, and then I got interested because of some of the case reports. Um, you know, so in terms of, you, you know, your original question, what is the nature of cancer? You know, what, what I believe, first of all, I believe that theory is cheap, um, and I, I operate mainly by case reports in the sense that, you know, I have people that Dr. Kelly treated that lived many, many years after they should have died, patients that Dr. Gonzalez or I have treated uh, that have lived many years past when they should have died. And so that's, when you when you boil it all down, that's why I do what I do. Um, in terms of theory of what might be going on, um, what we believe is that um, that pancreatic enzymes have the ability to modify the behavior of stem cells, which would include cancer cells, and that a lot of what cancer is is about the the environment that the cells are living in and not so much about a fatal error in the cancer cell itself that makes it go crazy. Um, so so it's, a, it's a different mindset as opposed to the you know, purely genetic theories about cancer. And again, um, you know, I've, I've written a whole paper on this subject uh, that was published earlier this year about um, the history of the treatment of cancer with pancreatic enzymes and about some of the theoretical mechanisms by, by which they might work. But the real thing that keeps me going is case reports. Yeah, interesting. So if you have a, a patient come to see you with cancer, uh, what, obviously, again, it's going to be individual, uh, depending on the patient, but what is the sort of mainstay of your approach? Obviously, coffee enemas would be a part of that. 
dietary lifestyle mindset, I'm guessing as well, is probably a big part? Um, Mindset is certainly important. I don't tend to be as prescriptive in that area just because, you know, different patients can find different ways to to tone down that that stress response, um, which I think is really what they need to do. So for one patient, it might be meditation, but I have other patients who are, um, uh, their, their Christian faith doesn't allow for meditation per se, but prayer is serving the same function. Mm. Uh, so I'm, I'm not as prescriptive about mental outlook, but it's certainly important. Um, the dietary uh, changes are always important too. I don't think it's possible to continue to eat a lot of processed foods and you know, junk food and stuff out of boxes and be able to get better um, with an approach like this. But then the pancreatic enzymes are really the, the core of the, the treatment that I would recommend for a cancer patient. So these pancreatic enzymes, are these um, ones that are coming like animal-derived or are they plant-derived? Does it matter? Uh, they're animal-derived. And, you know, the enzymes need to be similar to the enzymes in our own bodies that are serving this purpose. So plant enzymes are completely different things. Um, I think plant enzymes can be very useful as digestive aids, but in terms of what would have an effect on cancer cells, I think it's got to be animal-derived. Um, I do occasionally have a patient who is a very, you know, very devoted, ethical vegetarian. Um, and the only thing I can say there is that the animals uh, that are the origin of the pancreas tissue, so to speak, um, they're not being butchered for their pancreases. They're being killed for their pork chops. And the pancreas that we're using um, would have otherwise have turned into pet food. So it's really putting to good use something that otherwise would have been, in effect, thrown out. Yeah, right. So with your dietary approach here, um, you mentioned processed and refined food. So that would obviously be the first thing that someone with cancer would probably need to look at is reevaluating what type of food they're eating. But do you think it matters uh, if they're vegan, vegetarian, uh, carnivore, do you think that that really matters or is it more about removing the, the processed and refined foods? And what about things like sugar as well? Do you think that they're particularly um, problematic? Well, I think that white sugar, refined sugar is a problem because it's really empty calories. It doesn't come with what your body needs to process it. And so um, I don't recommend white sugar for anybody. Uh, for sugars that come in fruits, for example, or in carrot juice, uh, you know, I, I don't think that's going to be a problem for most people. Um, and then with diet, uh, we actually believe that different people need different kinds of diets. The vast majority of cancer patients fall into, um, uh, we believe, a more vegetarian-ish type of diet, although even there I would allow eggs. Um, dairy, if it's tolerated, um, fish, uh, but uh, and liver is actually also very valuable. Um, there are some some patients that have cancers of the immune system, uh, like lymphoma, leukemia, um, most melanoma patients. Uh, in our experience, those people actually need quite a lot of animal protein in their diet. Um, so we don't have a one size fits all type of diet. Right. Uh, there's a spectrum, um, but most patients are either on, the, 
the typical cancers like lung cancer, breast cancer, prostate, colon, all of those fit into the more on the vegetarian side. Yeah, so it's not kind of uh, similar to like a Gerson therapy where it's a very protocol driven every it's like a cookie cutter approach for each person you must do this type of juice and you have to do this amount of coffee enemas per day etc cetera, etc cetera. it's sort of more sounds like what you're doing is more tailored for the individual it's a bit more tailored and also because we're using large amounts of pancreatic enzymes we can be a little bit more liberal with protein um, what I believe when the Gerson protocol works, and it does work sometimes, uh, when it works, um, I think it's because the patient does have some pancreatic enzyme function, and that extreme vegan diet uh, allows those enzymes to be used for other purposes like cancer yeah. surveillance or cancer destruction. Um, but because I'm giving people pancreatic enzymes, I can also liberalize their protein intake a bit. And, uh, you know, my experience is that, well, of course, this is the people that come to me having done Gerson. I, you know, the people that do well with it um, wouldn't, wouldn't come to me. Exactly. But having said that, I, you know, I, I routinely hear from people that have tried to do the Gerson approach that they just run out of gas, you know, that they start feeling really tired. And if they start eating a bit of animal protein, that corrects itself. Yeah, it's interesting that you say that because a lot of people would recommend people stay away from animal products when they're trying to um, treat cancer. And I hear some people even say that animal products are a cause of cancer. So it's like all this conflicting information out there. Well, it depends on the animal product. You know, yeah. I think the the main, uh, you know, there's been a few studies come out lately that would suggest that the issue with animal products isn't just any animal product. It's the processed stuff, you know, like yeah. the lunch meats or the, you know, the bacon that's that's been heavily processed. You know, it's 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 junky meat, in effect, that's really the problem and not good quality grass fed, uh, you know, animal products the way they were 200 years ago is what you're looking for. Yeah, it's a great point. And there's a guy that I've had in my podcast called Joel Salatin. He's a farmer. And uh, he this quote always sticks with me. He said, if you're going to eat a sick, diseased, stressed out, toxic piece of meat, you're going to become a sick, diseased, toxic, stressed out piece of meat. So that's, you're right. That's, that's a great way of putting it, yeah. Yeah, it's really to do not so much with the meat itself. It's how it was grown, what it was fed, what were the conditions like when it was alive, how was it slaughtered and how was it prepared. Is it a heavily right. processed piece of meat? Yeah. Mm -hmm. What about things like surgery and chemotherapy and radiation therapy? Do you think that they have their place? Um, well, it depends on the circumstance. Um, you know, I think that for, for localized cancer, surgery can be completely curative. And I would recommend somebody get it. Uh, sometimes surgery is absolutely necessary. Like for instance, a colon cancer that's blocking the colon, mm. causing obstruction, you really need to go ahead and do something about that. Uh, so um, in terms of chemotherapy, again, you know, there are some cancers where it works. Uh, you know, childhood leukemia, for example, or um, uh, many lymphomas, uh, you know, there are a number of situations where chemotherapy or radiation work very well. Um, the key point there is to ask the right questions. Um, and, you know, sometimes doctors 
will, I don't think they deliberately try to trick people, but I think that they, they tend to paint the best possible picture. Uh, and so they'll use terminology that patients don't understand, like remission, for example, that's not a cure. Uh, that's a different concept. A remission just means you can't find the cancer on scans, uh, but it doesn't mean a cure necessarily. Um, so, you know, people don't always know what to ask, uh, and then they wind up getting treatment that they might not have gotten if they had asked the right questions. Yeah, as always, I always find it fascinating about um, chemotherapy. There was a systematic review that I read, maybe it was in like 2004 or 2006, around that point in time, and they looked at the um, efficacy of uh, chemotherapy for um, many different types of cancers. And I think the overall success rate that they attributed to chemotherapy was around 2% or something around this level. So uh, do you think that there are is a potentially higher success rate by using things like dietary therapy, coffee enemas, pancreatic enzymes? What's been your experience in clinical practice? Well, it's very difficult to answer that question. And part of the reason for that is that, you know, I'm not in a position to follow people home and know whether or not they're actually doing their treatment. And right. this, this kind of a treatment is a big lifestyle change. Uh, you know, I've, I've read that, you know, even with people faced with, you know, heart disease, for example, that are told to modify their diet, you know, after a couple of months, um, their diet is pretty much back to where it start, where, where it started, um, unless they have very aggressive follow up. Um, and with this kind of work, uh, what patients get from other doctors is more typically discouragement as opposed to encouragement to keep doing it. So it makes it very difficult for me to say, you know, oh, this is tremendously better I, I, in terms of, you know, statistical numbers. And as you might gather, I'm a, I'm a pretty analytical person, you know, so when you ask me a statistics question, I'll answer, you know, I, I, can't, I can't determine it for sure. Um, what I'd say, though, from my point of view is that, you know, if I had a cancer and I found out that standard treatment wasn't going to cure me, I would try something else um, as opposed to going through with a toxic treatment that's not really going to do that much. Um, but, you know, other patients, you know, they, they get pressure from family or doctors or whatever. And, you know, so they don't always follow through. Do you find that uh, people who change their diet lifestyle and follow your advice with these um, various other things that you've recommended, that once the cancer goes away, that's it. They can go back to living their old lifestyle and doing the same old thing, or they have to be diligent. If they get back on the road they were traveling before, they're going to wind up in the same place. That's what I would say. Uh, and, you know, again, um, I mean, I have patients, like, for instance, one of the patients that I talk about a lot, a, a gentleman with lymphoma, he was diagnosed in 1995, uh, and that's a cancer of the lymphatic system. Um, he had swelling in the lower half of his body. They did a CAT scan and found a number of enlarged lymph nodes in his abdomen that were causing that, that swelling fluid to back up. So he started with me and uh, followed his program and his, the swelling all resolved. Uh, he had a scan a few years later that showed everything was gone. And he's had a few scans since then. 
uh, that have continued to show no sign of cancer. Now, he has not been on the entire protocol um, for many, many years, but uh, he continues to eat well, uh, cleanly, and he continues to do coffee enemas periodically. So it's not like he went back to his old life. Um, and I think that's where people can really get into trouble. Many of the patients, though, will continue to take large amounts of enzymes as well as coffee enemas and a good diet pretty much indefinitely. Yeah, interesting. Um, so I'm just looking through some of the questions here that I was uh, going to ask you. There was one here about sharing some notable case histories. Um, <laughs> do you have any examples of um case presentations that you could share? Uh, sure. Um, I have a number of them, actually. Yeah. And um, I'll, I'll just mention to your, your viewers that uh, if they go to my website, uh, there are some articles that sum up a number of these cases on, on my site that they can download um, that like to look at the technical terms, so to speak, for some of these things. But uh, one one particular patient I like to talk about, um, she's a woman who in December of 2000, um, she was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer. She had a CAT scan that showed a mass in her pancreas and it was biopsied about a month later and shown to be adenocarcinoma, uh, the bad kind. There's, there's two types of pancreatic cancer and she had the, the aggressive kind. Um, the biopsy was sent to another hospital where they confirmed the diagnosis. And uh, she started with me in April of 2001 and she is still alive now. Um, so that's 21 years. Um, so she's, she's actually coming up on 22 years since the time she was diagnosed. I spoke to her about a month ago. And uh, so, you know, she was telling me uh, when we spoke about how she had traveled to see her granddaughter and her granddaughter is like 21 years old. They had a wonderful time together. And I, I was thinking to myself, you know, if it hadn't been for all of the work she put in to do this protocol, um, she would have never even seen her granddaughter. Um, and now her granddaughter is a grown woman. Um, so I thought that was uh, you know, a nice touch. Yeah, that's amazing. Yeah. And uh, that's particularly interesting because pancreatic cancer is usually not something that you can live for live with for very long. It's got a fairly um, low long-term survival rate, if I'm not mistaken. Yes, it's a very aggressive cancer. And uh, the typical numbers for pancreatic cancer in nine months to a year would have been remarkable for her. And she's 20 years out. Wow. So that's, that's a pretty solid story. Now, you know, having said that, I'll say pancreatic cancer is still, even in this model, difficult to treat uh, because patients frequently have trouble eating. Uh, that's how they come to be diagnosed uh, is trouble eating. And also sometimes it, it can block the bile duct, which can create all kinds of what are in, a, in essence plumbing problems, but problems that can make management very difficult. Uh, so, but having said that, you know, we have some, some long-term survivors with pancreatic cancer and she's one of them. Yeah. Interesting. Are there any other um, forms of cancer that you've had uh, present to your clinic or patients with um, sort of severe uh, forms of cancer who have had long-term survival? 
Uh, yeah. Um, there's there's a number of different patients with breast cancer that have done very well. Um, the one that comes to to the top of my mind, though, is one that was treated by Dr. Kelly. Uh, this was a woman who was diagnosed with her first round of breast cancer was in, I think it was 1970. Uh, and she was only in her late 30s at that point, but she was found to have cancer on one side and they did a mastectomy. And then a year or two later, she developed cancer on the other side and had another mastectomy. Um, and this right there is a very bad sign, you know, that a young woman is getting cancer on both sides uh, you know, so, so early in life. Mm. Uh, but then... About a year after that, she started feeling very tired and then developed back pain to the point where she was having trouble getting dressed. I, after a year or so of telling her doctors that she didn't feel well, they did a bone scan and they found that her, her um, right shoulder blade lit up along with a spot on her skull, indicating metastatic disease. Again, not terribly surprising given the bad prognosis of having cancer so early. Mm. Um, and so she had her ovaries removed. That was the only way back then that they could manage estrogen. But nobody thought that would be curative. And so she decided to get in touch with Dr. Kelly. She went on the Kelly protocol, which would be, again, large quantities of enzymes, diet modification, coffee enemas. Um, she went on Dr. Kelly's protocol and at the time that Nick was finishing up his research in the mid 80s, he was already you know, 11 years out from diagnosis and feeling fine. Now, with this particular case, a few years ago, I decided to see if I could track her down because she had an unusual last name and I knew where she lived. So I decided to use the Internet, see if I could find her. And I called her up. Um, she answered the phone. We had a nice chat. Uh, this would be, what, 40 years after the wow. diagnosis of metastatic breast cancer. And she was alive and feeling great. I am very grateful to Dr. Kelly and to Dr. Gonzalez and myself for keeping this work alive. Um, now, she herself has since then passed away. I'm not sure exactly what from, but she would have been around 86 years old uh, when she passed away. And I think it was 2020. That's a remarkable result. and. Um, given these results that you're getting, surely the medical profession, the oncologists and the surgeons and things would be beating down your door to come and try and find out why you're getting such good results so they can use it with their patients, right? No, that's not the way that it works. Um, the medical world, I mean, first of all, we, we, we did try to do some research back in the 90s. Uh, we did what's called a pilot study with pancreatic cancer uh, that was published in 1999. Um, we got very good results on that. But then when we tried to do a more formal study, um, there were all sorts of obstacles and roadblocks um, to really getting a good study done. Um, it was in pancreatic cancer again. And uh, the reason why, you know, sometimes people will think, oh, pancreatic enzymes, pancreatic cancer, maybe that's all they treat. Um, we chose pancreatic cancer as a, as a cancer to study uh, just because it has a fairly uniform um, expected lifespan. 
uh, you know, with breast cancer or prostate cancer, things can vary quite a lot from person to person. Um, so, you know, one person might have a very slow growing cancer and another have one that's more aggressive. With pancreatic cancer, it's pretty uniformly nasty. And so that's why we chose that particular cancer for our pilot study. Um, the trouble was with the, the big study that was done that, that it wasn't really managed properly. Um, we weren't in control. We, we could only, we could treat the patients that were sent to us, but we didn't have control over who was sent. Um, and we had epidemic non-adherence um, to the protocol by the people that were assigned to our arm of the study. Right. So the whole thing turned into a big mess, a very depressing big mess. Um, part of the reason, you know, we didn't get much support, very little actually from the oncology community, and which surprised me because I, I felt like we were trying to do the right thing um, by doing the research and we would have appreciated you know, just having people be supportive of us and more importantly of the patients. Uh, but there's this common belief in the medical world that if you don't know how it works and it doesn't work, which doesn't make any sense to me. Um, you know, if, if we have, you know, I, I have a patient who's 20 years out with pancreatic cancer, and she's not the only case like that. Um, so why does it matter that I can't tell you exactly why, you know, the pancreatic enzymes mess around with this or that genetic mutation or, you know, whatever? Um, it doesn't matter uh, in terms of saying you know to the patients oh that's an incredibly stupid treatment there's absolutely no scientific basis for it well, what does that mean you know they've got all this chemotherapy that they've got all this quote scientific basis but it doesn't work yeah so why not you know i i could never understand why there was so much opposition but since then, there's actually been more study on pancreatic enzymes and right. how they might possibly work against cancer. Um, so, you know, this this may all change in 10 or 20 years. Um, but in the meantime, I just will continue to treat patients. What's the sentiment with your colleagues when they see the results that you're getting? Are they interested or do they sort of just turn a blind eye to what you're doing? Or do you get them yeah. talking to you about what's the results that you're getting? Yeah, it's it's a very rare thing that I hear from another doctor that's seeing one of my patients. I will routinely hear from the patients that their doctors have said, keep doing what you're doing, but you know, in effect, you know, they don't say this in so many words, although keep doing what you're doing. The patients definitely hear that, but don't tell me about it. I mean, that's kind of the... <laughs> Um, you know, and part of it, too, is that they're only seeing one of my patients. You know, I think that if a particular doctor were to see multiple of my patients, I think they might give me a call. Um, but, you know, bear in mind, your typical oncologist, they've spent, you know, many years uh, learning their art, their, their, their treatment methods. And, you know, here... Here, I'm coming along saying that a crazy orthodontist in 1965 developed a method of cancer that works better than what they're doing. They don't want to hear that. You know, that would really upend their life. And so they kind of come up with reasons why they don't have to pursue it, unfortunately. Yeah, it's interesting. Certainly, um, patients that I've dealt with over the years and even colleagues who've worked with cancer patients, um, when their patients 
talk to the oncologist and say, hey, whilst we're doing this therapy, what should I be eating? What should I be doing with my lifestyle? What else can I do, doc? And they basically say, oh, it doesn't matter what you eat. And I've always wondered, is that because they're not getting trained about nutrition in oncology school and therefore because they're not getting trained in it, it has no merit or no basis in uh, forming part of the treatment protocol? Yeah, well, part of it too is that many doctors don't really eat all that well. So to get their patients to eat better, they would have to accept that they themselves need to eat better. So, you know, many doctors don't exercise, so they don't tell their patients to exercise. And so that that can tie into it, too. Having said that, there are some great articles coming out here in the last couple of years about how diet makes a difference in the efficacy of cancer treatment, and that's including orthodox treatment. Um, so I'm hoping that bit by bit things will change, uh, although patients will probably have to take the initiative to a large degree. But those articles are out there now. Um, there was one particular one that I really liked. It was it was published in 2018 and then a follow-up uh, little article earlier this year, which was when I saw it. Um, but what had happened, there was a study that was done in, I think it was 1999 to 2001. And the study was actually comparing two different kinds of chemo that were given to patients who had had colon cancer and had uh, positive lymph nodes, which would suggest you know, that they were likely to have a recurrence. So what they were trying to do was administer chemotherapy um, to, uh, to prevent a recurrence, in effect. They were trying out two different types. And, but they also, just sort of a, in a by-the-way kind of thing, I believe, asked the patients what their diet was like and whether they were exercising. And they asked them that before their surgery, I think it was, or maybe right after, and then again after they finished their chemotherapy. Um, so the, the, the two types of chemo, it didn't make any difference. They came out the same. But when 15 years later, they looked at the recurrence rates and compared the people that were exercising and eating properly uh, versus the ones that were not, mm -hmm. they found that the ones that were exercising and following a good diet had a much improved um they were much less likely to have a recurrence, I guess is the way I could phrase it. In other words, it made a difference. It made yeah. a big difference. Uh, and so so that's the kind of, of study that I think is really fascinating. And more and more of those are going to be done, I hear. How many of these studies do we need before the oncologists and surgeons and things start to change their mind about this? Do you Do you think we need a lot more evidence or do you think there's already sufficient there and they're just not aware of the evidence that already exists? Well, I think, um, you know, I've heard it said that it takes 20 years to change the practice of doctors in the community. Uh, so in other words, it just takes a long time for stuff to percolate through. I hope that that's not true for this, um, mm. that, but that's why I was saying that it may need to be patient driven. Um, that, in other words, the, the educated patient will find out about this for themselves uh, and then put it into practice. Um, 
because, you know, again, you've got people that have worked in a certain way um, with the, you know, the, the lollipops and the junky sugary dessert stuff sitting there in the chemo room because they believe that you, you just need those calories and it doesn't matter what kind of calories. Well, it turns out that's just not true, um, but it's, it's going to take time. Do you um, offer training to other clinicians as well about your protocol, or is this mainly just um, you're treating in clinic, you're just seeing real-life patients uh, and focusing on that? Yeah, I, I don't offer training at this time. Um, you know, that I suppose that might change at some point. But my my personal belief has, has been that in order to properly train somebody, I would need to be able to spend time with them, mm. you know, as opposed to, you know, the weekend seminar kind of approach. Mm. And it's partly because there's there's a fair amount of unlearning that one needs to do. Um, you know, even something as simple from my point of view is that different people need different diets. But what most practitioners wind up doing is putting everybody on the diet that works for the practitioner. Uh, it, it's it takes some time and some some learning. Um, I also believe that to really properly advise people about this protocol, you need to do it yourself. So um, my first my first comment about somebody that I would be training would be, are you willing to do coffee enemas? <laughs> I think there's I don't think I could sell them half as well if I wasn't a user of them and a beneficiary of them. I guess I could say uh, if I wasn't doing it myself, um, I don't think I could talk other people into it. Um, but uh, like I said, most of my patients love it. Yeah, the practitioner has to practice what they preach. Absolutely. And that's part of the issue, again, with, with you know, your typical oncologist and oncology nurses and all that. Their own life may not be all that healthy. Mm. If it was, they'd be telling their patients about it. If there's someone who's listening to this podcast now and maybe they have a disease or they have cancer or they know someone who has mm-hmm. cancer, um, do you take all patients or are there some patients who um, you're unable to help and what do the patients look like what things do they need to uh what boxes need to be ticked in order for them to be able to work with you or to get success from your treatment right um well i do not take all patients and um some of the criteria, so to speak, I think just make common sense. Um, this is a nutritionally based protocol and it involves swallowing a lot of pills. So if somebody is having a great deal of trouble eating or has lost a lot of weight, um, then this is not going to be a good approach for them. Um, and you know, kind of going beyond that, there's sort of a philosophy. Um, you know, some patients, when they get a life-threatening illness like cancer, they want to do something. They want to be active. But other patients, perfectly understandably, may want to get a kind of treatment where someone does something to them. Um, in other words, they're more passive. Uh, and passive people don't tend to do well on this protocol because it requires a lot of motivation and um, a determination to to actually follow through with it. 
Mm. Um, and, you know, beyond that, it can start to get into just my own clinical impression based on the types of patients I've seen in the past. So what I ask people to do is to go to my website and to look at a section called um, new patients. And it spells out what I ask them to send in about their situation, which I would review and, and assess whether or not I thought I could be a benefit. Fantastic. Thank you. Um, I'll put up your uh, the link to your website in the show mm-hmm. notes. Um, but I'm assuming that your website would be the best place for people to get more information. Um, Absolutely, yes. Uh, yeah, so my website is www.dr, like doctor, d-r-l-i-n-d-a-i.com. Drlindai.com. Fantastic. Right. Um, before yeah, we... the, I, the I being for Isaacs, um, there's there's a wide variety of ways people try to spell Isaac. So I gave up and just went with one initial. Yeah, that oh, makes sense. Makes it easier. Before we wrap up for today's session, was there anything that you wanted to um, leave us with? Anything that you think is important that we may not have discussed? Or do you think we've covered it all? I think we've covered it all, and I really appreciate uh, all the preparation you've done and the opportunity to speak with you today. Thank you so much, Dr. Isaacs. I really appreciate your time. I will um, share this with my audience and put up the link to your show notes and also the links to some of the papers that you've written. And I haven't read some of those that uh, you mentioned today in our discussion, so I'm keen to go and have a look at those, particularly the one uh around the um pancreatic cancer trial back in i think you said the late 90s that you did was that published yes it was um i wanted to mention also if you or your viewers want to sign up for my announcement list which is completely free of course but as a little bonus um you'll have the opportunity to download um zipped folders with all of these articles in it so it's very convenient fantastic well i might go and do that then <laughs> brilliant thank you so much dr isaacs i really appreciate your time okay thank you so much thank you thanks for tuning in we hope you enjoyed the show the ideas discussed on this podcast do not replace the advice of your primary healthcare professional if you have any questions or comments head on over to humanly.com forward slash podcast and join the discussion don't forget to follow us on social media until next time